0: How did the two of you meet? This is a question that's commonly posed to a couple that's being met for the first time or interacted with after a few minutes of time as we desire to get to know each other, meeting them and greeting them and finding out about them. We do this individually when we meet one another. We want to learn about each other, even just a few minutes ago at a time of fellowship, a A time of exchanging of not just greetings, but names. And not just names, but information about one another and things you can learn about each other and perhaps even with the eyes to see evidences of God's grace in each other's lives. Grace Church, we want to be a church that extends the love of Christ to others. Not just others who are like us, but others who are different than us. Different backgrounds than us, speak different languages than us, come from different type of educational perspectives and different type of ideas, and yet coming under the banner of Christ, the risen Savior. We think about introducing ourselves to others. I think about the times in which many times people wanting to get to know my wife and I want to find out about us as a couple, our backgrounds and where we're from and Our families. People have all different kinds of answers, particularly couples as they introduce themselves to the answering the question, how did you guys get to know each other? How were you first introduced to one another? Perhaps the answer could be for some of you, well, our, our parents knew each other before we knew one another. Others of you perhaps would say, well, actually, we, we met online, which for some in an older generation, you're like, what does that even mean? For others, perhaps you would say, well, actually, met here at church. It was here at church or in Bible study at our church here at Grace Church is when we met for the first time and just began a friendship in the context of community and loving and growing and serving one another. That was a plug there in case you missed that. (laughs) What's not a common answer to that question of how the two of you met is to hear the man in the relationship explain that he first knew of his wife as a prostitute. She had not just had sex before marriage with another man, but many men, and in the context of a financial transaction, she was indeed a prostitute, but he, having met her, desired to marry her, and in marrying her, wanted to have kids with her. That would be an introduction. You'd be like, where do you go from there? You too? That'd be a bit of a shocking introduction of a couple to meet as they get to know each other, as they explain themselves to others. Yet, friends, that's exactly the couple we meet this morning in the Bible, in the book of Hosea. I want to ask you to open your Bibles to the book of Hosea. Now, understandably, if you're new to the Bible, First of all, if you don't have one, know that we have them for you for free. We'd love to give you one as a gift for being with us at Grace Church. They're at the Welcome Center. There might even be an extra copy behind the pew, at the back of the pew in front of you. But Hosea is the book we're going to be at. Where is Hosea? Hosea is in the Old Testament. If you go to the Psalms and start turning to the right, you'll come into what's eventually known as the major prophets, typically known for that based on the size of their books, And then you get into the minor prophets. So right after the book of Daniel, you'll come to Hosea. Hosea is where we're going to be now for the next five Sundays together. And we learn the story of this man and this woman and their three children. And we learn the tragic story of not only her life before her marriage, but her life even once she was married significance of that. One thing is going to be sure, talk about this couple, we're going to see and meet them this morning as we learn the story of Hosea and understand the significance of this. Now, understandably for all of you, at least by way of our teaching here at Grace Church, this is your first time being introduced to Hosea. Some of you are new Christians, and this might be the first time you've actually found your way into the book of Hosea. This is your first introduction. Others of you, perhaps it's been a minute. Well, regardless, let's put us all together to understand Hosea. Hosea is referred to as the first of the minor prophets, minor not because of the significance of the story, but because of the size of the material. Hosea and Jonah are the only writing prophets from the northern kingdom. Though Hosea addresses both Israel and Judah, the sort of two divisions of the people of Israel, as the kingdom of God was split, if you will, the kingdom of Israel rather was split after Solomon's reign ended between into two sections, he indeed speaks of primarily the older, excuse me, the upper section. Hosea has had a lengthy period of ministry prophesying for about 45 years. In fact, in very early verse of of Jonah, excuse me, of Hosea chapter 1, he references kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, the kings of Judah, that being the southern part. And in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, this would be Jeroboam II, king of Israel, What's happening here is that Hosea is beginning his ministry to Israel during these final days of Jeroboam II, under whose guidance Israel was enjoying both political peace and prosperity. But one of the tragic realities of that, during that time, political peace and prosperity, is that Israel increasingly became more and more morally corrupt. Decay had settled in, like it settles into the mouth of an individual who doesn't brush their teeth. And the cavities begin to grow, rot begins to settle. So it began to spread through the life of Israel, their spiritual bankruptcy. After Jeroboam II's death, however, anarchy prevailed, and Israel declined rapidly. In fact, if you think the politics in America are a bit, well, tumultuous and divided, friends, you know nothing of political problems. We even think of recent announcement of the Queen of England having passed away after a long reign of 70 years and seven months. Well, that's by contrast to the kings that would come after uh, Jeroboam, the kings that would come after him, of this next six kings that came sequentially, one right after the other after the other, four of the Israel's six kings were assassinated by their successors. You thought our political parties hated each other. They're not like out literally killing each other. They were doing that then. Twenty years later, after all of this mess, Assyria marches in and overtakes them. This is where we come to. Hosea has been called the deathbed prophet of Israel because he was the last to prophesy before the northern kingdom of Israel fell. Let me just, if I may, take a moment to explain to you the significance of why, as Christians, we want to read all of the Bible and understand all of it, including something that might seem so distant from us today, both by the names and the places and even the culture. It really kind of addresses the issue and touches on the issue of, as a Christian, how do I have confidence that this book I hold in my hand is any different from any other book I might hold in my hand. What makes this book so significant? Why should I care about it thousands of years later? There certainly is other books being written since that seemingly are more apparently irrelevant at least based on the language or the connections that they make. Friends, if you thought this way, this would not be uncommon let me just take a minute to explain to you why it's so significant that we as Christians know all of God's Word. God in His wisdom and in His power not only creates, as we see in Genesis chapter 1, He also communicates. And if there's anybody we want to hear from, it would be God. And the question is, well, how do we know that what we're reading is from God. How do we know it's not just some collection of some old writings found that we're kind of giving a little bit too much attention to and we should maybe dial back that type of focus and concern? Well, friend, what you're asking essentially is the veracity, the truthfulness of the Bible. How do we know we can trust the Bible? Well, Hosea is a perfect example to help answer this question. The Bible is not just some type of religious book as if it's a Greek mythological collection of stories about Zeus and these other children who sort of rule over the world, but we all know it's not true. No, the Bible actually sits in space and time and actually has a place in history with real people and real places, with real events that take place. But instead of spending all the time that you could spend maybe trying to convince your friends to believe the Bible, you could just simply go to the center of the Bible by way of storyline and significance. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels, who present one person, Jesus of Nazareth, who makes a profound claim to be the Son of God, who's come to take away the sins of the world. That's a Unbelievable claim will be even more unbelievable is if he actually can prove it by not only his power over life and death and disease and demons, but also his ability to lay down his life, being crucified, and three days later, raise it up again in the resurrection. Because if that's true, then everything else that he said is given credibility. And friends, historically, factually, even by those critics of Christianity would say, it's true. Do you know that one out of every 10 times Jesus was talking is making reference explicitly or implicitly to all of the scriptures, all of the prophets, the writings, and the Torah, as we will refer to them in the Old Testament? And that includes the book of Hosea. So you could say it to you like this, why do you believe in Hosea? Because Jesus believed in Hosea and the significance of what it teaches us for today. With that in mind, turning now to Hosea chapter 1, we'll spend our time this morning in Hosea chapters 1 through 3. Let me explain to you where we're going to go. First of all, we're going to learn about an innocent husband and an immoral wife, Hosea and Gomer. Hosea and Gomer. Look with me, if you would, Hosea chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Biri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel, and on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Jump down to chapter 2. Starting in verse 2. Plead with your mother. Plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. That she put away her whoring from her face, and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked, and make her as in the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land, and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She has conceived them and has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers, who will give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax and my oil and my drink. Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths." She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. Jump ahead to chapter 3, verse 1 through verse 3. The Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man. And is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a leketh of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man, so I also be to you. What we see in this first section of this, the first three chapters, is a provocative story, a story of marital union that is, well, dramatic. My wife and I have the opportunity many times to do premarital counseling with couples. And one of the things that we do when we meet with a couple, Uh, before I will marry them, is to really spend time kind of auditing their relationship. I want to have clarity, that they have clarity on the gospel, understanding of roles, the reality of sin and how destructive it can be, things about communication and conflict resolution, things about finances, things about how previous relationships with other partners before that marriage relationship could maybe influence that, relationships about family and how family can influence your decisions. It's all very complicated, but it's all very important. One of the challenges that can come up is the question of, hey, if I have, to my shame and regret, if I have been involved with other people before I've been married, I know that that's not been God's will for me, but I'm sorry to say in a spirit of humility, that's something that I've done. How much should I explain that to now my fiance, how much of that should I get into by explanation and conversation? Can you imagine doing the premarital counseling for Jose and Gilmer? <laughs> I mean, that would like it would I would be like Ronald, Chris, we have to do like elder premarital counseling, like, okay, Lord, please help us. It would be overwhelming. How did the two of you meet? Well, uh, Hosea, you want to tell him or you want me to tell him? I mean, the nature of this relationship is unbelievably complicated, to put it mildly, for the sake of a variety of ears here. The significance of what's being said in this relationship, and look at what God is saying, though. God is actually commanding, to the surprise of some, He's commanding Hosea to marry a woman named Gomer who was, already has a reputation. In the English Standard Version, it uses the term whoredom. It's this idea of prostitution, this idea of being with many lovers for the sake of financial gain, something that we'll pick back up here in a few minutes as well. This is her established reputation. You typically imagine that parents think about who their kids might marry one day. Will I like my son-in-law? Will I like my daughter-in-law? Will she like me? What will it be like for Christmas? What will we do together? Imagine Hosea introducing Gomer to the family. That's just awkward. From what she probably wears to like her background, to perhaps her language, to perhaps her interaction. This is how Hosea finds her. God says, I want you to marry her. Because in your marriage... God says, I'm going to teach a bigger lesson of my marriage to the people of Israel. All of a sudden, it gets incredibly uncomfortable. We're introduced to these children in verses 3 through 9, a son, a daughter, and then another son. In this explanation of their names, call his name Jezreel, this idea of scattered, scattered, We'll speak more about these historical events that these names are tied to. These sons of, and children of whoredom is not because she had them with other men, but rather she had them while living in her immoral ways. And so the children are sort of guilty by association. They have done nothing themselves, but the actions are carried with them. Now, just in Christ, some of you are wondering, like, did, did God really tell her to, like, name, a Hosea, to name his son like, hey, that's not my son. Hey, this is my, not my son. That just seems kind of awkward. Oh, not my son is so cute. Oh, not my son looks so adorable. Not my son is so smart. Like, is that really what's happening here? Is that how, well, listen, uh, just to help you explain this, sort of this Hebrew naming and how it would be understood, my name is Eric, for those of you who don't know that but probably a lot of you do not know, but until today, that means forever ruler. Now, unlike not my son, who probably doesn't want to be called that, I don't mind you calling me forever ruler. Some of you, I encourage even today at the end of the service, thank you forever ruler for that sermon. Now, I say that in jest, of course, but we have names that means something, those meanings are often not even sometimes understood by the people who have those very names. I happen to know the name Forever Ruler because trust me, you learn that little fact about the name Eric, you're like, that's a little bit of a mic drop moment. What's your name? Well, these three kids that are named are named to make statements, statements about the family that they have been born into. This is a common problem that we see throughout the history of Israel. How one generation after another generation after another generation seemingly cannot break away from the sins of their parents and their grandparents. God has this command for Hosea to marry Gomer. They have these children together. And then you can just begin to see the corruption that comes in. In chapter 2, the text we've already read, now this appeal. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife. Well, what's happened here? What's happened is Gomer, who you think would be so thankful that someone would actually love her and want to have children with her and bring her into his family and introduce her to his friends and introduce her to his parents and his siblings, she actually does the unthinkable. She goes back to her ways before as if she was never married while she's married. And there is this appeal, this corruption. It says this in verse 2 and following of chapter 2, she now becomes this adulterous wife. This phrase, she is not my wife and I am not her husband, some have interpreted this statement As a formal declaration of divorce, but this is not true. The Lord's ultimate purpose was to heal the relationship, not terminate it. The statement was an acknowledgement, as one writer, Derek Kidner, says, of no reality remained in the relationship. It's another way of saying, though we're married, it's as if we're not married. The Lord's wife, by her unfaithful behavior, has practiced, for all practical purposes, severed the relationship. That's what Gomer has done with her husband. You're essentially living as if you're not married. And the appeal is made to the children. This is not uncommon. You understand this even in the context of divorce. Some of you know this yourself. Being divorced, having had children before your divorce... And now you have this sort of joint custody, this sort of shared time with the different children. And so, at times, parents will speak to each other through those children. Hopefully it's dignified and respectful. Other times it can be sadly mean and divisive, Say so slander each other through the ears of the parents, or the children rather. That's not what's happening here. There's no slandering here. There's just simply an appeal. This appeal by explanation that she might understand. And God in chapter 2 verses 3 through 5 talks about this chastisement. The corruption has become so profound that God is going to chastise. Hosea is going to do this work. And it says, lest I strip her naked, as it says there. What's significant here is that doing so by Hosea would make Gomer an object of shame and ridicule. You'll think, well, this, this sounds rather ungracious. Friends, What you understand here is the punishment fits the crime. She has already played herself. She has already displayed herself. Her stripping physically is how she already is at relationally. And yet, unbelievably, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, as we've read, this woman who is loved by another man, not her husband, who is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to the other gods and love the cakes raisins, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver. What does this mean? Think of it like this. A man's married to a prostitute. After getting married, they have three kids. After having had three kids, she does the unthinkable. She leaves her husband, cheats on him, and goes back to her former lover's. During that time, she basically becomes a piece of property to another man that she owes money to. She is a piece of another man's property. So her husband, in order to get her back, has to pay for his wife. With his own money, has to buy his wife back for himself. You wouldn't believe it unless you could read it with your, own eye, with your own eyes. It's profound to see. But what makes this story so profound is the second part of our lesson as these things run parallel. We've talked about the innocent husband and an immoral wife, Hosea and Gomer. It takes us secondly now to the innocent husband and the immoral wife, the Lord and Israel. Go back, if you would, to chapter 1. As it says at the very end of verse 2, the significance of what it means here, the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Now look at chapter 1, verse 10. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. Now jump down to verse 8 of chapter 2. Transitions in speaking about Israel. She did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil, who lavished on her silver and gold, which she used for ball. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers. No one shall rescue her out of my hand. I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, these are my wages which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. I will punish her for the feasts of the Baals. When she burned offerings to them, and adorned herself with ring and jewelry, and went after her lovers, and forgot me, declares the Lord. Verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her her vineyards. I will make the valley of Acor the door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my ball. For I will remove the names of the boughs from her mouth, and she, will, she shall remember by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow and the sword and the war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety." I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on No mercy. And I will say to not my people, You are my people. And he shall say, You are my God. Chapter 3, verse 4. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without a king or a prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They shall come in to fear the Lord and do his goodness in the latter days. God is telling the people of Israel through the marriage of Hosea and Gomer, I see. There's two observations I want us to learn here, two lessons. First of all, God judges his people. God judges his people. I think the truth is, a text like this makes us uncomfortable. I mean, if you're a parent, you're probably already uncomfortable, like, wow, that was a pretty significant text. But even if you're a Christian, this might seem strange in your ears, because honestly, this text might be a bit of an audit on your Western, therapeutic, self-centered, God is my co-pilot sensibilities. We've kind of auto-selected a God of our making that's, yes, full of grace and love and mercy and forgiveness, yes and amen, but grown rather silent and mute on something like a God of justice, a God of wrath, a God of truth, a God of omnipresence and omniscience who knows all and sees all. What we're reminded of in the book of Hosea… That God sees his people, and he cares enough for them to not leave them in their sin with no consequence. He sees it, and he does something about it. This is important, because I think what may have perhaps missed is God's patience with the people of Israel was not like a day, a month, a year, a decade. It was over lifetimes. And I think for some of you, you might mistakenly think, for those of you who are Christians, wait, I'm in sin. But nothing bad seems to be happening to me right now. So either God doesn't see it, and I thought he did, or God's not concerned about it. And I thought he was. So maybe I can continue in sin. And this cycle continues on and on and on. And you have misunderstood what Romans 2 so clearly teaches God's kindness was meant to lead you to repentance, not to endorse you in a sinful decision that you perpetually keep returning back to. What you see here in the text is that the people of Israel had grown so accustomed from the blessing of God. They were in an unbelievably prosperous country at this time. They had like great extended borders. They had great reputation. They were known. You could say kind of in social media land, they had tons of followers, a countless amount of likes, and everybody wanted to kind of tag them in their posts. To be with the people of Israel was to be a people of blessing. And they mistakenly thought the blessing meant endorsement from God. Otherwise, how else could we have seen this happen? So God must be pleased me. Like, friend, you are misunderstanding. Israelites, you're misunderstanding what God is doing here. I just want to say to those of you who, like me, are followers of Christ, be very careful to think that God wants you to grow comfortable with sin being your best friend. And to not think in time that there's not consequences, both your soul spiritually and your life experientially. Is God loving and kind? Yes. Is He patient unbelievably? Friends, there are consequences. We do well to remember that. But what's also remarkable about God is not just His commitment to justice, It's his commitment to forgiveness. His commitment to forgiveness. God provides salvation for his people. That's the second lesson to learn here. God provides salvation to his people. When I mean, you look at the text. You're like, what's happening? How, how, how could this have happened? I mean, how do you get to chapter three, verse five, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God, and David their king, and they shall come into fear of the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. How do, you, how do you get there? Because God is doing a work. He is doing a purifying, sanctifying work in his people's lives. That At every chapter along the way is not the final chapter of their relationship with God. I think the problem can be for some of us as Christians, we love reading the end of the book and don't really want to address the beginning of the book. So you're telling me God's gracious. Yes, I am telling you that. I'm telling you more than that, though. The word of God is showing that clearly. There are consequences. And yet we see God's commitment to providing salvation. Let me think about Israel's salvation as it speaks about here in chapter 1 and in chapter 2. Israel will be multiplied and received and restored by God. She will once again be wed to the Lord. She will know of God's love as never before. Her valley of trouble will become a gateway of hope. She will live in an environment of relationship. How is this possible? Is God just like a schizophrenic God who is like bipolar and you got to tread carefully? When you might get him, you might get him in a bad mood or a good mood. What well, it comes down to this significant statement here in chapter 3, verse 5. The children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. Okay, I know you're probably lost in history. David, the king of Israel, is dead. He's already died. Like, are they just not caught up in the Times? They've not read the New York Times, they don't know the Washington Post, they don't know what's happening here? They've not caught up with like the, the genealogy record? No, it's because that statement, the King of David, was a statement of the promised Messiah that God would provide out of the lineage of David that they would turn to for salvation. Friends, the only way you get a just God and a forgiving God Is when you get a crucified and resurrected Savior who comes from the lineage of David. That's Jesus Christ. So, do you understand? Their hope was not in a generic character of God. He's gonna be upset. For a while, it's going to be really hard, but he'll get tired of being upset, and he'll eventually go back to being kind. No, it's because he will have a commitment to justice and forgiveness simultaneously, which only the cross of Jesus Christ explains those two coming together. There is hope for all those who would turn to the Lord by faith in Christ, and in him that can receive forgiveness. For those of you who are not in Christ, you do not identify as a Christian, you're perhaps here exploring the teachings of the Bible for the first time, you're hearing perhaps what's a rather shocking sermon, like, wow, I didn't expect to go to church today and hear all this talk about whoredom? I was expecting maybe a three-part series on how to have more purpose in life. Apparently, the lesson is stay away from whoredom. I'm sympathetic to you, perhaps feeling a little disoriented, but let me just say to you, friend, everybody wants to know that there's justice, and there is. Justice when your property is stolen, when your person is harmed, when your relationships are destroyed when there's discrimination and racism you've experienced, when there's economic oppression that's taken place, you want to know, is there justice? There is. But justice is not determined based upon your and my changing standard of it. It's based upon a perfect standard of a holy God whose justice is defined based on his character of holiness. That's both encouraging and concerning. Because based on that understanding of justice, no one's gonna get off. But that same God is also committed to grace. How often would you want the judge that you would appear before to be lenient on his sentence, if not sort of expunge your record? Some type of excuse you can give, friends, You would want nothing greater than for God to expunge your record and to declare you sinless and to declare you righteous. That only is declaration can be made by faith in Christ. And that is their hope. They were looking forward to a future hope that God would provide. And while we look back to the past hope that God has already provided in Christ. Go and marry a prostitute. These are the first words that God spoke to his prophet Hosea. Why would he ask this of one of his spokesmen? Because he wanted to teach Hosea. He wanted to teach the nation of Israel. Because he wants to teach you and I today a lesson that we should not forget. This lesson is both painful and joyous. The book of Hosea is about God's loyal love for his covenant people in spite of their idolatry. Hosea has even been nicknamed the St. John, the the apostle of love, the St. John of the Old Testament. The Lord's true love for his people is unending and will tolerate no rival. If you've never surrendered your life to Christ, ask him to forgive you of your rebellion against him turning to the only and greatest means of salvation that is trusting in Christ, His resurrected Son, the Savior. Do that even now as I speak to you. And for those of you who have, be reminded of the opportunity even yet this morning to identify any areas of idolatry present in your heart, in your life, seen with your hands, known by your tongue, identified through your possessions, and decide now to return to the Lord to find His love for you more attractive than the lovers of this world who will use you and then leave you while your Heavenly Father says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.